Amen. So Matthew chapter 27, starting verse 1. Now, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they're the price of blood. And they consulted together and brought with them, uh, bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, As they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them to the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused, the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear what many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at the time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I'm innocent of the, of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Well, Calvary Chapel Truckee, can you believe it? We're almost complete with the, the Gospel of Matthew, right? I mean, we only have two more chapters. So I figure it will take us maybe just 10 or 12 months to finish out the, the book. I'm just kidding, of course. Uh, but personally, you know what? I love digging deep into God's Word. I want to picture every scene in my mind. I want to hear the words that Jesus spoke. I want to dig deep into God's Word. And I want to uh, dig deep with a surrendered heart and, and just ready to hear everything that the Lord wants to speak to me personally through His Word. And you know, it's my prayer as we come together as a church, as we come together to study God's Word, that you'll hear God speaking to you too. 
you'll hear um, words of encouragement, you know, words of comfort. You know, I, I pray that you would be exhorted and blessed, that you'd be edified and uh, strengthened and, uh, you know, uh, exhorted to run the race that God has set before you for His glory. That's the purpose for us coming together as a church. Well, in verse 1, we, we read, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put Him to death. So just a little refresher uh, for where we're at right now. Jesus has been taken to Annas first, right? After He was arrested, John's Gospel gives us that detail. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He was the brains behind the operation uh, that resulted in, in the high priest making money, hand over fist, you know, literally ripping off the people, uh, forcing them to buy temple-approved sacrifices, um, you know, charging them exorbitant exchange rates uh, to exchange the Roman currency into the temple shekel. And after that, Jesus was taken to Caiaphas' house. So that's where uh, he faced the Sanhedrin. And if you don't know, the Sanhedrin was a group of, you know, somewhere between 70, 71, 72 men who ruled over the nation of Israel. Uh, they were something like our Supreme Court. And I think it's important for us to understand, as I mentioned last week, that the trial of Jesus was completely illegal. They actually violated every law and tradition that they had in their pursuit and predetermination to crucify Jesus. Uh, there were very specific rules regarding uh, trials, you know, rules that came from their oral tradition, you know, based on the law of Moses, but then was recorded in the Mishnah, written down in the Mishnah. Uh, and these rules uh, re were there regarding any trial that was brought before the Sanhedrin, which is what's happening here. And these religious leaders, they broke all of the rules. For instance, all criminal cases were only to be tried during daytime hours. Trials uh, were never to be um, conducted during night or even in the dark. All trials had to be, uh, had to be completed during the day, right? Criminal cases could not be tried during any of the great feasts of the Jews. Only in cases where the verdict was not guilty could that trial be completed on the day that it had begun. And of course, there could never be a verdict of guilty rendered the same day that the trial started. And so that required a minimum of two days for a trial, especially uh, if it ended in a guilty verdict. And Jesus was arrested at night, you'll recall, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was immediately tried during the Passover, one of the greatest feats of the Jewish people. And his trial was completed the same night it began. Some of the other rules, if the verdict was uh, obtained and the sentence was to be death, the traditions and law required that a night had to elapse before that sentence uh, and execution was carried out. And what that did was that allowed for the members of the court uh, after coming to a sense of death, it gave them uh, at least one more night to sleep on it. It gave them a chance to change their minds after sleeping on it. No decision of the Sanhedrin was valid unless it took place in their own meeting place, not in Caiaphas's house. 
where the chief priests, the scribes, and elders are assembled is what we read. All evidence had to be guaranteed by at least two witnesses. All witnesses were to be examined separately, and they were never to have any contact with one another. Any false witness or uh, perjury was punishable by death. And these religious leaders, what do they do? They arrange for the false witnesses in Jesus' trial and allow them to perjure themselves. Every trial was to begin with the presentation of all the evidence arguing for the innocence of the accused. The evidence of guilt was only to be presented after the arguments of innocence uh, was made. Each member of the Sanhedrin was uh, to give his vote separately, independently, beginning with the youngest, going to the oldest. That way, you know, that would ensure that none of the older members of the Sanhedrin, um, you know, the more respected members of the Sanhedrin, would influence the younger members. All members of the Sanhedrin had to be present for the trial, especially if a verdict of death uh, was rendered. Well, uh, but... For Jesus' trial, not all the Sanhedrin were present. We know that Nicodemus wasn't there. Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council, we're told in John, he wasn't there uh, either. This, was, this group that's meeting in Caiaphas' house right now is a select group of council member, members that were invited, and it excluded honest and uh, more noble members of the Sanhedrin. The laws and traditions... Uh, that these religious leaders were willing to violate gives us an insight of the wickedness of their hearts. It shows us, you know, how eager they were to silence Jesus' voice. It also reveals to us that the threat that Jesus posed to their power and uh, the religious system, and uh, as well as the threat to the unbelievable amount of money they're making off the backs of just the common guy that's coming to worship the Lord. Well, in verse 1, it says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And again, this is probably taking place before the sun has come up. One of the other gospels tells us that it happened early in the morning. Jesus has been up all day, all night. He's been beaten. He's been abused. And these guys are plotting against Jesus. They've already decided to put Jesus to death. So what they're probably doing it would seem, is that they're trying to get their story straight before they uh, head off to engage the Roman government. They're not sure at this point if the Roman government uh, will even get involved. So they're plotting, trying to figure out how they can get Pontius Pilate on board in order to use him to uh, bring about the means to their end. Verse 2, and when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now, you might want to make note of the fact that they had bound him. I mean, picture in your mind our Lord being chained as they led him away. And we mentioned last week that word led. Jesus was led away. He wasn't dragged away kicking and screaming, right? He went quietly in fulfillment of prophecy. And again, it should take us back to Isaiah 53, 7, that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. You know, as you look back over our study of the gospel of Matthew, maybe you've noticed Matthew, he's been quoting uh, or alluding to an awful lot of prophecies. Uh, he, he, he does that because of who Matthew's intended audience is, right? You'll remember 
uh, that first and foremost, Matthew is writing to the Jews, right? This is why he quotes so many prophecies. He's attempting to prove to the Jewish people that Jesus is, uh, you know, indeed the promised Messiah, that he's the king of the Jews. So Matthew, as we go forward, he's going to continue to quote an awful lot of uh, prophecy, allude to a lot of prophecy, again, directly and uh, indirectly. For instance, in verse 46, we didn't read it in this chapter, Matthew records Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, why did Matthew record that saying? Uh, What's his point? Uh, Why is he pointing that out to his readers? Well, it's a direct quote of Psalm 22. You know, David prophesied a thousand years before Jesus was born into this world. David prophesied the very words that the Messiah would speak from the cross. And any Jew at the cross at that day and every Jew reading Matthew's gospel afterwards, hearing Jesus say that should instantly take them to Psalm 22. Jesus said it, Matthew recorded it, so that the Jews who heard it, the Jews that read it, that they would wake up and understand this is prophecy being fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 2, and when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now, Jesus being led away to Pontius Pilate was even fulfillment and prophecy. Can you think how that could uh, have been a fulfillment of prophecy? You play it through in your mind. How, how is that possible? Well, the Jewish people had been stripped of the right of, to exercise capital punishment. Rome had taken that away from them. And, uh, but if they did have that ability to exercise capital punishment, how would the Jewish people have executed Jesus? Uh, the, the method of capital punishment for them was stoning. In some cases, the Jews just got out of control and they executed people. Uh, They stoned Stephen, Acts chapter 7. Here in this situation, however, the Jews being aware that they don't have the ability to execute Jesus, the religious leaders, they're hoping to get um, the Romans involved. That way, if there's a riot that breaks out of the people, which they were afraid of uh, seeing start, you know, then they could blame the Romans. And then the Romans could come in and they could put down that riot in a short order. And this is, again, all very important because the Romans perfected something that the Persians invented. The Persians invented crucifixion, and the Romans perfected crucifixion in that the way the Romans did it is it allowed for the maximum amount of pain and suffering before the accused actually passed away. Some victims lasted as long as four days on the cross. And Jesus being handed over to the Romans and put to death by the Romans was a fulfillment of prophecy because his hands and feet were knelt to the cross. Right? Just as Psalm twenty-two sixteen says, right? They've pierced my hands and feet. Again, this was prophesied 600 years before Rome ever adopted uh, crucifixion. Prior to that, there was no method of capital punishment that pierced a person's hands or feet. You know, and it was also a fulfillment of the prophecy uh, in Zechariah, Zechariah 12.10. Then they will look on me whom they've pierced. That was prophesied 500 years before Jesus was born. 
Verse 3, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he'd been condemned, was remorseful. Now, the King James Bible translates this by saying that um, Judas had repented. That's not the best translation. The New King James says remorseful. I'm not sure what Bible that you're reading, but the Greek word that's used here, speaking of Judas, is that he regretted it. He was sorry for what happened, but there was no repentance. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says that for godly sorrow produces uh, repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but sorrow of the world or worldly sorrow produces death. There's a big difference between, you know what, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry for what I did. I'm just sorry for the fact that I got caught versus, you know, uh, godly sorrow, which leads to repentance. You know what? God, forgive me. I'm so sorry. Forgive me, please. Help me never to do that again. I'm sorry for the, the pain that I've caused. And unfortunately, you see, Judas, he's remorseful, but the only place his regret, regret leads him to is death. He ends up committing suicide. We're going to read that. Uh, he's gonna go, he goes out and he hangs himself. We're going to read that in just a couple of few verses. So Judas, remorseful, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. And as I mentioned it last week, it's interesting to me that Judas never was able to enjoy that which he betrayed Jesus for. You know what? Those 30 pieces of silver never brought him any joy, much less any lasting joy. So Judas was remorseful, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and betrayed innocent blood. This is something that you might want to underline. This is Judas's opinion of Jesus, right? I think it's pretty significant. If Judas, after three and a half years of hanging out with Jesus, seeing everything about Jesus, if Jesus even uh, did one little sin in his life, Judas would have pulled that out and used it as a justification for his betrayal. You know, I think it's safe to say that uh, Judas was an enemy of Christ, you know, and his opinion of Jesus was that he was innocent. You know, sometimes you'll hear people, they'll ask, you know, if Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him, why did he allow Judas to be part of the 12? I mean, why did he allow the betrayal at all? And I think the answer to that question is fairly simple. I, I think it was, at least in part, to produce a uh, witness that had intimate knowledge of Jesus. Judas was part of every moment of Jesus' public ministry, but more importantly, Judas had firsthand knowledge of Jesus' private life, right? And Judas, uh, his declaration of Jesus being innocent is saying that he never heard Jesus say anything sinful. He never saw Jesus do anything even remotely wrong, slightly wrong, either in public or in private. So Judas, he says, I've sinned and be, and by betraying innocent blood. And they said to Judas, what's that to us? You see to it. Listen, if you make a bargain with the devil, 
and you come to the place where you regret it and you want to get out of that deal you made with the devil, if you think the devil's going to feel sorry for you because, you know, you made a bad choice and those consequences are starting to, to come upon your life, then if that's what you think, you don't know, what the, you don't know the devil, right? These religious leaders used Judas. They got out of him exactly what they wanted, and now they're washing their hands of him. They're not going to do anything to help him out. They're basically saying to Judas, you know, you did what you did, and what you did was terrible. But what's that to us? That's all on you, pal. You know what? You, you deal with it. In verse 5, then Judas threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. You know, what a sad end to Judas's life. What a waste. Uh, Judas's life was such a terrible waste. He had such privilege in his life. He had access to God incarnate in a way that only 11 other people in all of human history had. You know, we said in a previous study, again, that he saw with his own eyes you know, he saw every miracle that Jesus did. He saw uh, the deaf, the blind, the lame healed. He saw the lepers cleansed. He saw the dead raised to life. He heard with his own ears everything Jesus had ever said and ever taught. Judas had such privilege in his life, privilege that only 12 people in the history of the world has ever had. You know, his life was such a waste. And how sad it was that Jesus, or Judas went out and hung himself. I mean, you just think about it. When Jesus came to betray Jesus with a kiss, no less, Jesus calls him friend. Jesus is still reaching out to Judas. But instead of responding to, to Jesus, instead of turning to the Lord, Judas betrays the Lord. And his life ultimately became a waste. He goes out and he commits suicide. What a waste it is when someone commits suicide. What a, a waste of life. You know, the New Testament says what? The thief does not come except to what? Yeah, it's John 10.10. 10. Jesus said, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. You know, do you know that suicide is at epidemic levels among young people? Suicide is the second leading cause of death for, uh, among people ages 10 to 24, right? And for uh, uh, the leading cause of death, they had to lump it together, unintentional injury and homicide. That's the leading cause of death in that age group. Suicide is the second leading cause of death. I mean, just think about that. Homicide and suicide are two of the leading causes of death in young people today. Lives just being wasted. You know, how Satan wants to destroy young lives today. How Satan wants to kill and destroy the lives of young people today. You know, getting them to waste their lives. Uh, it's so sad. The enemy knows the difference that one person can make, you know, fulfilling uh, one person, the enemy knows the difference one person can make uh, when the Lord has touched their life, when the Lord's grabbed hold of their lives and 
come and control our life. And the enemy desires to keep people from fulfilling the Lord's plan for their life. Uh, so he goes after them, after these kids today. Personally, I hate the devil. I mean, he is a sick, sick foe. He's willing to, you know, place his sights beyond us onto the young, young kids uh, around us in our town and, in, and even in our homes, our children. Verse 6, But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they're the price of blood. What a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, really? You know, now they're concerned about the law and what's lawful? I mean, talk about uh, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel, a camel. They've been engaged in plotting the death of Jesus, an innocent man. They've arranged false testimony against him. The trial of Jesus broke every law and tradition that they had regarding legal proceedings. And now they're concerned about the law. Oh, wait a minute, guys. You know, uh, that's blood money. You know, we can't, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, we got to consider what, the law. We got to consider what's the right thing to do. I mean, it's no wonder Jesus called these guys hypocrites. Right? Outwardly, they had one set of standards, but inwardly, you know, in other areas of their lives, they were living by a completely different set of rules, right? They were living a double life, that just flat-out hypocrisy. And Jesus tells us that we're not to be like the hypocrites, right? We need to protect ourselves from living one way around uh, the brothers, hey, uh, praise the Lord. God bless you too. Hallelujah, you know? And then living some different way, you know, at work or when we're with our non-Christian friends, right? It's all Jesus at church, but it's all work hard and party hard, you know, the rest of the week. We need to be careful not to live double lives like that. Verse 7, and they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. So what's a potter's field? Well, wherever there's a potter's house, there's a potter's field. The potter's field is where he would discard all the marred and failed attempts at sculpting a pot. It was where all the broken pieces of pottery were tossed out and discarded over the years. And you can maybe picture in your mind after years of throwing uh, broken pieces of pottery into the field, it became fairly worthless, right? It was no longer good for farming, uh, so you could buy it relatively cheap. So here they, they were able to buy this field uh, real cheap, 30 pieces of silver, and now they have a place to bury dead foreigners, a place to bury Gentiles. Isn't it interesting that they are able to buy this field with the money that was used to betray the Lord? I mean, I find that so interesting. Isn't that what the Lord purchased with his death? A world of broken lives, broken, marred vessels, youth, useless and worthless vessels. Isn't that what the Lord purchased? Isn't that exactly what we are? You know, that's what's so wonderful about allowing the Lord to work in our lives. Even as the Lord told Jeremiah, Jeremiah 18, to go down to the potter's house saying, hey, Jeremiah, I want you to go down there to the potter's house and I want you to watch what he's doing. So Jeremiah goes down there. He watches the potter. He, and he watched how the potter took these marred pieces of clay and put them back on the wheel. And he'd spin that wheel and he'd reshape that clay, uh, you know, those marred pieces of clay, and he made them into something useful. And God said to Jeremiah, 
hey, am I not the potter? And are you not the clay? Right? Isn't it great uh, when the Lord comes into our lives? He takes these marred and broken lives, these ruined and worthless lives, and He begins to work with us. He puts us on the potter's will in order to reshape us, in order to remold us. You know, he, he takes what was once marred and broken and he begins to reshape us into something of beauty and worth, making us vessels of, of honor which contain a priceless treasure, which is him, of course. Right? The Lord has all kinds of different ways of shaping us into objects of beauty. He wants us to be all kinds of different ways of sculpting us, different ways of applying pressure in, his, in our lives, right? You know, circumstances, situations, you know, other people. He has all kinds of tools to shave uh, off a little here, a little there. And it's not always pleasant when the Lord's shaving off pieces, right? Knocking off the rough edges, applying a pressure through that boss, you know, through your spouse or through that person. I don't know about you, but I don't always like it. In fact, I don't like it at all. It's not fun. It's not comfortable. And, and then I think about the potter's wheel going round and around and around, right? Uh, there's that lump of clay just sitting on the potter's wheel going round and round and round. And the potter works with that clay. And it just reminds me of, you know, the daily routine of life. Everything's the same. Nothing changes. Just the mundane processes of life. You get up, you go to work, you eat lunch, you come home, you eat dinner, you go to sleep, wake up and repeat. Sometimes life is just so boring, day after day after day. And yet God has a way of using that too in our lives, doesn't he? I mean, you know what? He has a way of making us into the people he wants us to be through all kinds of different situations, right? The Bible says that it's in Christ that we become a new creation. Old things have passed away. Our, our lives become, and I love the word Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2. He says we are his workmanship. And you probably already know, uh, but the Greek word used there for workmanship is po poema. It's, um, you know, where we get the English word, poem. I mean, we're his poem, right? It can also be translated masterpiece. We're his poem. We're his masterpiece. He's the master poet. He's the master artist. He takes these blank and worthless pieces of paper, and he begins to compose these beautiful poems, these beautiful masterpieces in our lives. He takes these blank canvases that are worth nothing, and he begins to paint uh, these wonderful pictures in our lives. He takes, you know, the worthless, marred pieces of clay that's worth nothing, and he begins to reshape us, re-sculpt us into just an amazing object of beauty and value and worth created in Christ Jesus. That's speaking of the new creation that he's made us into in him. Paul says, Ephesians 2.10 that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
He has a plan for each of us. He's prepared good works for us to accomplish. And it's His desire that we would walk in His ways, bringing His desire in to the things He's called us to. And I think it's just so amazing that these 30 pieces of silver were used to buy a worthless potter's field because that's exactly what the Lord has done. He's purchased a field, filled, a field, filled, full of marred and broken vassals. So they took the 30 pieces of silver and consulted together and brought them uh, bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, this field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now listen, look at it. Verse 9, this was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Again, Matthew is showing us that Things are happening exactly as prophesied hundred and hundred years uh, earlier, right? But now, important, what catches your eye in verses 9 and 10? Do you see something there that doesn't seem to line up? Was it indeed Jeremiah who prophesied this, right? Yeah. It's not Jeremiah. It's actually Zechariah. Contradiction. There you have it. You can't believe the Bible's full of contradictions. You know, how do you answer that? How do you answer that? Because it was Zechariah. It's Zechariah 11, 12 is where you find this prophecy. It's not in Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah lived 60 to 80 years before Zechariah. And it's very possible, just as Matthew said, that it was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, and it was Zechariah that actually recorded the prophecy after it had been passed down many years. That's entirely possible. That's a plausible explanation for what's behind this verse. It's also possible that when God gave Matthew the gospel of Matthew, as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he wrote Zechariah, and over the years, one of the scribes made a mistake and wrote Jeremiah instead of Zechariah. You know, it would have been a simple mistake to make. And that too is, is a possibility. Scripture is given under the inspiration of God and it's without error in the original, right? But it's entirely possible that this could be a mistake that one of the scribes made. The scribes took tremendous efforts to maintain the integrity of the text that they were copying. I mean, they would, when they would copy the scroll, they would do it one letter at a time, right? And then when they came to the name of the Lord, they would put down their pen, they would go, uh, they would wash, they would put on clean clothes, they would come back, they would grab a new pen, they would get some fresh ink, and then they would continue. But it's, it's possible that um, they made a mistake in the process. Um, I thought I'd just point it out to you so that you'd be aware of it and prepared if somebody ever brings this issue up to you. But you need to know this, right? The few mistakes that are found in the Bible, right? Most of them are numerical. For instance, 30,000 instead of 3,000, something like that. There are no doctrinal mistakes or contradiction found in the Bible. Verse 11, now... 
when Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? What's interesting here is the first question out of Pilate's mouth is a question that's worth answering. So Jesus answered and said to him, it is as you say. Jesus knew that he's going uh, to end up being crucified, but Jesus wanted Pilate to know, even though he was going to be crucified, he's going to be end up uh, end up being crucified. It's not because of any of the accusations that were heaped upon him by the religious leaders. It was solely because he was and is the king of the Jews. Verse 12, and when and while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Jesus is being accused by the chief priests and elders. He claims to be a king. He's telling people not to pay their taxes. He said he's going to destroy the temple. You know, the chief priests and elders leveling all these accusations against Jesus, and yet Jesus answered them nothing. Jesus said nothing to defend himself because he came to give his life a ransom for many. Right? In fact, Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus is headed determinately, purposely to the cross. Verse 13, then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him, not one word. So the governor marveled greatly. You know, I'm sure Pilate had never seen anything like this before. You know what you would have been like if you were being falsely accused? Imagine what you would have done had this angry, vicious mob been screaming out all these false accusations against you. I mean, I can hear myself saying, that's not true. That's a lie. You know, I never said those things. And I can hear myself crying out, defending myself against the lies. And yet, look at our Lord. You know, he doesn't answer them one word. You know, in 1 Peter 2, we find such a beautiful passage of Scripture that brings us home for us. It's one of those passages that you probably uh, don't, uh, you know, have underlined. You've probably not written it down on a three-by-five card tacked at some place where you could see it, memorize it. A lot of us kind of stray away from these passages where, that talk about suffering because, hey, right? If you're really following hard after the Lord, then you're not going to experience any, any uh, problems in life, right? Everything's going to be a bed of roses. God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and right, wise, right? No, that's not the case. Look at what Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 21, 23. For to you, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps, or follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges uh, righteously. I mean, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? Jesus didn't have to respond to his accusers. He committed himself to God. God, you see it. You see what's going on here. I don't need to defend myself, Lord. I trust you to take care of it. You know, it's something that really speaks to me. Sure, it hurts when you're falsely accused. It's painful to hear someone say something that's patently untrue. But if you're like me, opening your mouth, defending yourself, I mean, that just opens a whole nother can of worms, you know? When you start defending yourself, you start saying things that 
you know, just don't need to be said. Psalm 37, 5 and 6, another favorite verse of mine. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as a light and your justice as a noonday. I mean, that's how I want to handle hurtful and false accusations that are leveled at me. I want the Lord to bring my righteousness in the situation to light. How these passages speak volumes to me. Verse 14, But he answered him not a word, so the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at the time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who's called Christ? Now, what's going on here, as you piece the other Gospels together, Pilate's trying to get out of this mess that he's in. He knows Jesus is innocent of any wrongdoing and that he's been brought before him because the religious leaders are envious of him. We're going to read that soon. Pilate knows that he's being manipulated, right? He knows that he's caught up in the storm, and he actually resents the situation that he finds himself in now. And what Pilate ought to have done was just slam the door shut on the religious leaders and release Jesus. He should have just put a stop to all of it. He should have told the religious leaders to go pound sand. You know, you brought nothing that would make me think this man is worthy of death. Now get out of here. If he had only done the right thing, as soon as he realized that it was what the right thing was, you know, things would have been different. But since he didn't do the right thing, Pilate's name is forever associated with what he did uh, to Christ on that day. One of the other gospels tells us that Pilate wanted to let Jesus go. But instead of just doing it, he thought he'd let others decide for him, right? Pilate avoids making a decision in regards to Jesus. He thought he'd win the people over through compromise. So he decides to let them decide what's to be done, right? In an effort to appease everyone, he's going to offer a release of a prisoner from custody. And he thought for sure, he thought if he brought up the name of Barabbas, Everybody knew Barabbas was a murderer. Everybody knew Barabbas was bad news. Everybody knew he was a notorious prisoner. Pilate thought in light of this custom, if he brought up the name of Barabbas, you know what, surely the religious leaders and certainly the people wouldn't want a terrible man like Barabbas roaming around loose on the streets. Historical writings tell us that Pilate at this time He's actually in a mess with Rome, too. I mean, there have been three uprisings in Jerusalem, and history tells us that Pilate himself received a letter from from Tiberius Caesar himself, right? Saying if anything else happens, there's any more riots, any more bloodshed, you know what? You've had it, buddy. You know what? Uh, It's your head that's going to roll. So Pilate's under a lot of pressure here, and he thinks to himself, certainly, if I throw out the name of Barabbas, I mean, there's no way that they're going to want me to let him go free. Let me just say something to you this morning, and I want this to search my heart too. The best time to say no to something is 
You know, immediately when you find out that it's wrong, as soon as you realize it's wrong, that's the best time to say no. Pilate should have shut down the religious leaders right then, but he keeps that door open. Pilate plans at this point, his plan was to satisfy the religious leaders by scourging Jesus and then letting them go. But the longer Pilate allows this to go on, you know what? The harder it is to put a stop to it. Let me ask you this morning. Is there something that you're getting pulled into? You know, is there something that you know you, you should put a stop to it right now, but you're allowing it to continue? And you know that it's wrong. But you're thinking, you know, it's just going to be easier to say no a little further down the road. Well, it's not going to be. It's not going to be. It only gets harder. The moment we realize something is wrong, that's the moment we need to act decisively. And Pilate fails to act. You know, I pray none of us makes the same mistake Pilate makes in the things that we're facing. You know, something else that's interesting in regards to Barabbas now, if you're reading a different Bible other than the King James or the New King James, uh, your Bible uh, might read, you know, some newer manuscripts translate the name of the prisoner Pilate throws out there as Jesus Barabbas, right? Jesus was a common name at the time, Yeshua in Hebrew, Joshua in Greek, you know, and this is, this is a real common name. And this is going to uh, be meaningful as we go on a little bit further. Verse 17, therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who's called Christ? Which Jesus do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas, a notorious murderer, a thief, an insurrectionist, or Jesus who's called the Christ, who's called the Messiah? Verse 18, for he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Man, it's amazing the effect that envy has in our lives. And what these men are driven to do, all because of envy. Verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I've suffered many things today in a dream because of him. And I know some of you guys are about to get an elbow in the rib, Steve-O. But if Pilate would have just listened to his wife, I know, I'm sorry, guys. But really, had Pilate just listened, heeded the insight of his wife. God uses our wives in our lives to bring a different perspective, a, a perspective that we're not aware of, right? You know, we'll be doing something and we'll be talking to someone and Tina will say to me, you know, I think this. And you know, it's just my nature. It's just my nature to say, what? No way. <laughs> You've heard that before? You know, but when I slow down and when I think it through, you know, she's usually right. And honestly, it's amazing how often as I look back, it's amazing how frequently God has spoken me through my wife. You know, I think we'd be far better off, guys, if we learned to listen to the insights our wives have. You know, something came up this last week where I thought, great. Here's an open door for us to escape a certain situation. But after talking to Tina, God clearly showed me that, that that's not what his heart was for us. 
right? God has used Tina more often than not to speak wisdom to me. In fact, God uses her in my life more than any other individual. So I'm thankful for her. I'd be in a whole lot more trouble if I didn't have Tina in my life. I want to learn from this passage. But this passage just doesn't apply to us men, right? You know, this passage, I think, can benefit you gals too. Learning to listen to your husbands, what they have to say, you know, hearing the wisdom that your husband are bringing, the wisdom that he's sharing with you. I think this is very much God's heart for us as husbands and wives. Verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man for I've suffered many things today in a dream because of him. You might want to underline what Pilate's wife says about Jesus, that he was a just man. I think it's a very informative Bible study, very good study to look at uh, the people who declared innocent uh, Jesus innocent of any crime. There's Judas, there's Pilate, there's Pilate's wife, there's uh, Herod even, you know, and the centurion that was in charge of Jesus' crucifixion. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Again, it never even entered Pilate's mind that they would even dare to ask for Barabbas to be released. Pilate is completely shocked when they said Barabbas. Pilate said to them, and what a question we have here. What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said to him, let him be crucified. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? You know, Here's Pilate sitting on the judgment seat. He's making the judgment regarding Jesus. And he comes to the place where he has to decide, what am I going to do with Jesus who's called Christ? But do you, you want to know what I think is interesting about this whole judgment thing? What's interesting to me is Pilate's judgment on Jesus doesn't have anything to do with Jesus' destiny. His destiny has been prophesied long ago all the way back from the Garden of Eden. It was prophesied that the Messiah, when he came into the world, his first coming, that he would be crucified. He would go to the cross and he would bear the sins of the whole world. That was going to happen regardless of Pilate's decision. His decision has nothing to do with Jesus' destiny. And what's amazing about Pilate's judgment is that it had everything to do with the judgment that would be passed down upon Pilate. His judgment regarding Jesus determined his eternal destiny. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the truth of the matter is every one of us, everyone has to sit on the judgment seat and we'll have to make a judgment on what am I going to do with Jesus who's called the Christ? And the amazing thing is that that judgment that each of us make regarding Jesus will never change who he is, right? But the judgment that we make concerning Jesus in reality determines our own judgment, right? Every, every judgment that you make concerning Jesus will determine your own destiny. The judgment you make concerning Jesus will determine your destiny. Every single person that comes into the world must answer the question, what shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? And Jesus said, what? He said, if you're not for me, 
you're what? He said, if you're not for me, you're against me. That's the line. It's been drawn. Everyone will find themselves on one side of that line or the other. You're either a believer walking in fellowship with the Lord or you're not. You either have confessed Him as your Lord or you're denying Him. You're either submitting your life to Him as your Savior or you're rejecting Him. There's no metal ground when it comes to your decision about Jesus. You're either on one side of the line or the other. Right? Pilate asked the question in verse 22, what then shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. Man, we can never allow the crowd to dictate what we're going to do with Jesus. Then the governor said, verse 23, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. You know, I'd like to remark on something that you'll often hear uh, about the fickleness of the crowd that followed Jesus. Sometimes you'll hear, you know, uh, a teaching on how quickly the crowd turned uh, against Jesus, right? How uh, the day of the triumphal entry, they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then three days later, the crowd turns on Jesus, crying out, let him be crucified. Personally, I think they're two entirely different crowds, Right? I mean, you need to remember, this trial before Pilate, it happens very early in the morning. The crowd that cried out, Hosanna to the son of David, that crowd hasn't even had their first cup of coffee yet. This, I think, this crowd, the crowd that's calling for Jesus to be crucified is a mob that the religious leaders have assembled. Right? I don't think that that teaching that says the people quickly turned against Jesus bears any weight. I think that they're entirely two different crowds. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, and you really see Pilate trying to prevail. In Luke's gospel, we see that Pilate tried to release Jesus three times. He knows what's right. He knows what he should do. He knows what his wife has said he should do. Pilate's aware that Jesus is innocent. He's aware of how corrupt these religious leaders are. He's totally aware of what's taking place, how they brought Jesus to him because of envy, how he's a threat to their power over the people. And it's that pressure there from the crowd and this tumult that's brewing. You know, I think that Pilate understood that the things... Uh, are taking a path, they're going down a path that's bigger than he's able to control. And he's trying to be a people pleaser rather than a God pleaser. He knows what to do, but he doesn't do it. When you put compromise together with a failure to slam the door on temptation, a failure to do the right thing when you realize what it is that you should do, you put all those things together with a, a, a willingness to please people over a desire to please God, and that's a recipe for catastrophe. That's um, the making of a disaster in every life, regardless of the issue of life. And boy, I tell you what, you don't want these things to line up one, two, three, right? Especially in regards to the most important decision you'll ever make in life. And that's a decision regarding whether or not you're going to follow Jesus as your Savior. Now, Pilate knows things are getting out of control. He knows what, what it means if this crowd begins to riot. It means his job. 
It means that Tiberius Caesar is going to be all over his case. It means, uh, you know, that his head's going to roll if this riot breaks out in Jerusalem. His career is over. And so here you have a man who knows what he should do. He knows what the truth is. He knows what's right. And yet because of the, cr the crowd of people around him, the influence they had on him, and his concern for his position politically, you see Pilate, verse 24, he took some water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Sorry, Pilate, too late. Nobody washes their hands of Jesus, right? All of us are marked by what we do with Jesus. Every person in this world is forever marked by what they do with Jesus. It doesn't matter what other people think of him or not. Verse 25, and all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. It just makes me wonder. Do you think these guys understood what it was that they were saying? No, I mean, wow. I mean, you look at the history of the Jewish people. Jesus, as he drew near Jerusalem, he wept over the city. He told them, if only you knew the peace that I had for you this day. And he went on to tell them, because of their res uh, rejection, Jerusalem was going to be ruthlessly slaughtered by the Romans. And it was just 40 years later. And you can read about it in the writings of Josephus. He writes about how the Romans surrounded the city and millions of Jews were slaughtered there in that massacre. Verse 26, then he released Barabbas to them. Pilate gave in to the pressure of the people. His job was more important to him than doing what was right. Isn't it amazing that our jobs can do that to us? Right? I mean... You know, we can get to that place where there's so much pressure on us in our job, right, that we actually do what's against our own conviction, that we give in and do what we know is wrong because of the pressure we feel bearing down upon us. What a mistake it is to go along with the pressure of the world, right, instead of doing what we know to be right. And here we see Pilate. He released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And I'm sure you already uh, know, but maybe for the one or two of you that are here that maybe don't know, can you figure out what Barabbas means? Bar means son of the father, son of, right? Uh, so Jesus called Peter Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon the son of Jonah, right? And Bar means son of. What about Abbas? Sounds like Abba, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. Jesus Barabbas is Jesus, son of the Father. And it's interesting here in verse 26 that the guilty son of the Father was released and set free, and the innocent son of the Father, Jesus Christ, was scourged and crucified. Isn't it a picture of our salvation? Right? It's through our faith in Christ that the guilty sons, you and me, right, those who are without a doubt guilty, have been set free and have been granted life. While Jesus Christ, the innocent Son of the Father, went to the cross in our place. And that's what Peter later wrote, 1 Peter 3.18, saying that Jesus suffered once for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. 
Matthew 27, 26. Such an interesting verse. Barabbas, the guilty son of the father, was set free and was granted life while the innocent son of the father was scourged and crucified in his place. Real quick, just in closing, the rest of the story concerning Pilate, his life, it's this. In 35 AD, just a couple years after he had ordered uh, Jesus to be crucified, Pilate brutally put down a religious pilgrimage that was held by a false prophet uh, from Samaria. He viewed this pilgrimage as a revolt to his rule, so he sent the military in and he slaughtered almost all of them. The Samaritans complained to the prefect in Samaria, who was Pilate's immediate supervisor, and he, was, and he ordered Pilate to return to Rome where he had to give an account for the slaughter before Caesar Tiberius. And the result of that trial was Pilate was relieved of his position in Judea and Jerusalem. And from that moment on, Pilate completely disappears from the pages of history. The fascinating thing about it is just two years after Jesus uh, was crucified, after Pilate had Jesus crucified, Pilate loses his position and all the power that goes along with it, right? He loses his reputation and the esteem of some very bad people, right? He lost everything he tried so hard to hold on to that day when he ordered Christ to be crucified, avoiding making a decision about him, trying to hold on to everything through compromise, compromising his conviction, failing to do what he knew was the right thing to do, and giving no heed to what he knew was true about Jesus. He ultimately loses all of it. And the lesson for us, what's true about Pilate, will also be true for every single one of us, every single person who rejects Jesus for the same reason, right? We will ultimately lose everything that we reject Jesus for, every relationship we reject him for. And our eternal destination will be determined by the decision we make in regards to Jesus. Pilate is an outstanding example in Scripture of what not to do, what not to do when confronted with what we're going to do with Jesus, who's called the Christ. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for just your goodness, your grace. Lord, I'm thankful that you've allowed the innocent son, you've allowed me to go free, you've granted me life, and you took my place. Lord, I'm so thankful that God, you, you were willing to bear my sins upon the cross, that you were willing to bear our sins upon the cross. You know, if you're here this, this morning, you don't know Jesus, or you're watching online, you don't know Jesus. Boy, I just encourage you. The decision you make regarding him is going to determine your eternal destination. Why not just turn to Jesus? Don't follow Judas's path. You know, there's no magic prayer to recite. It's just praying from your heart. God, forgive me. I've sinned. I've done wrong, and I'm sorry, Lord. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe that you're God, that you died on the cross. You were buried, and three days later, you resurrected. Lord, I want to repent of my sin. I want to turn from my sin and turn to you. Lord, would you 
Forgive me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me a new creation. Give me the power to run after you. And if you'll pray that prayer, he'll meet you. Lord, I just pray that you move on hearts that don't know you. Maybe hearts that are compromising, Lord. Make a commitment now. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.